0: Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 56 of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Aren't you glad I'm not going to talk to you for two minutes about Harry's razors or mattresses or other product placements? It's just the Strauss Center at the
1: University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. We don't have ads. We don't have ads. Oh, well, I'm Steve Vladek, and Bobby, I can say comfortably the state of our union is wrong. <laughs> the state of our union is wrong? Yes. Oh the, my god. The state of the union is wrong. Are you going to watch tonight? Oh, you know, this is this is a good question. I we were talking about this before we came on the air on the air today. I'm really I'm downtrodden, I'm depressed, and I'm trying to figure out if watching the state of the union is going to you know, just make me feel worse, or if it's going to, you know, energize my my antipathy and antagonism and intelligence and, and passion. Well, if you don't watch, are you going to stay off Twitter? Because I'm imagining for a couple hours, <laughs> well, tonight, is, Twitter right. is going to be just awful. Well, so this is the problem, right? So so if I don't watch, you know, we'll just have to like put on a movie and go to bed. So but the thing is, part of the value to me of watching the State of the Union is going to be State of the Union Twitter. Uh, there could be some funny stuff, it's just hard to break through. You know, somewhere somewhere in Washington, there are teleprompter operators, right, who could be heroes. Oh, <laughs> are, you, are you trying to suggest someone should subvert the teleprompter? Let me just ask you, I mean, just just blank slate. Would you rather watch President Trump give a 45-minute uh, summary of what he's reading off the teleprompter, or do you rather see him have to wing it?
0: Oh, I think that question answers itself. Of course it does.
1: So, <laughs> so tel- I, think, I think we're all watching, hoping that he'll go off script at oh, some point. Oh, gosh. So teleprompter operators of the world, we're looking at you. you well, Help I, I think us teleprompter so operators. Here's my argument for watching it
0: rather than just reading about it. Because yeah. I think that if ever there's been an occasion for decorum to be broken up in a way that we maybe haven't seen. Like
1: shouting, you lie? Even worse, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, that, was,
0: that was, I thought, a horrible breach of decorum. And I think we might, uh, who knows what we might see tonight, either from behind the podium or. Uh, In the audience,
1: ask me the question: Who goes first?
0: Right. Well, I'm I'm interested to see like which justices show up. It's always kind of fun Mm -hmm. to see them. I like the pageantry, as you know. Um, And if uh, you know, this whole thing has been like we're living through some sort of anti-Truman show. This sort of anti, this sort of (laughs) scripted uh, TV-like reality we're now in, and. uh, it does increasingly seem like 2018 is the year the show is jumping the shark.
1: I, I think, mean, I say, think
0: the Nunes memo may be the shark. Oh, gosh. Nunes is. may be Fonzie. In so, so
1: we're going to get back to, <laughs> really, I mean, just, just, you know, yes, last week was hashtag release the podcast, but. I, I'll just—I mean—we're going to get back to hashtag. Uh, there's the memo. a lot left to say. Um, I'll just say about listen. The state of the union has always been political theater, right? This is not That's the whole point, right? This is not the sort of night where Washington puts its partisanship aside and comes together in unity. No, no. But but there's something that just this feels like an important week, um, right? In sort of all things, this administration, all things like, frankly, rule of law. Right. Um and so the it, it's not just that it's his state of the union, it's that it's a state of the union at this moment in this administration in this climate.
0: I agree. It's a, it's another focal point. But even if Washington can't put aside their partisan division we can. We can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So here's what we're going to talk about, uh, and we'll just mix in the frivolity along the way as our, as our new practice. Super Bowl Fifty, whatever. <laughs> I think the Cowboys are going to win. I'm g- giving them by go seven. Giants. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to talk about the Russia sanctions bill mm. and the action, the things that did and did not take place this week, which have caused a little bit of uh, uh, f- ferment. <laughs> and I think that if we look closely, as we're going to, at what the sanctions bill actually says, we can better understand the actions the administration did not take this week, mm-hmm. um, and then that will be followed by a discussion of this business about Don McGahn.
1: Yeah. So you know, we we, we, we resisted the urge to have an emergency mm-hmm. podcast. Um, although I will I will say I think we have to tell the story of, of our text message exchange Friday night.
0: Oh yeah. That, that's good. should we do that now?
1: Uh, no, we'll have okay. Let's can just say let's just say that, that that while I was on Twitter and ignoring, no, let, let's
0: just tell real quick. This is, this, my is a,
1: this was a funny little thing.
0: Yes. So so uh, then you from your perspective, what happened?
1: So the news comes out, right? The 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 alerts pop on my phone that um, I guess I, who, the New York Times, I think, broke the story, right? That right. Um, in last June, the president had had ordered or sort of made clear his wishes um, that Mueller be fired, right, Special Counsel Mueller, and that he had basically been thwarted by his White House counsel, Don McGahn. Um, and so Ben Wittes organized this emergency recording of the Lawfare podcast and texted both of us mm-hmm. to see if we were available to join him without saying anything in the text message about why. And so... Uh-
0: Cut to the scene at <laughs> uh, at a bar in uh, East Austin called the North Door, where uh, I'm with my band, and we have been down there loading, then playing uh, for about from about five p.m. till what ten p.m. Central Time, and I'm not looking at my phone that whole time. We're playing, um, and when I finally get my phone out at the end of the show, I look down and it's like emergency podcast, emergency podcast. And I thought, oh. Oh my god, what has happened?
1: So 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 the great so 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 the the thing that then happens is is one of my favorite moments in a long time, which is Ben and I play a game with Bobby where based so where where he basically has to guess what right. has happened. Right? Cuz
0: I haven't actually opened the phone. I just looked right. down and saw the notices right. and I and I replied directly off that top layer right. and I said, "Wait, I ha- I've been in a news vacuum. What's happening?" And one I think you immediately responded by saying, "Don't look. Try to guess." And so uh, what, uh, do you, are you going to pull up the exchange?
1: Um, I wasn't really going to pull up the whole exchange. Yeah, but, yeah, it's not that it, interesting. it was basically, I mean, the, the, the short, short version is it was fun to watch Bobby try to figure out, based on the state of agitation and excitement, exactly oh. what had happened. Did not take you long. No, no,
0: I think my first guess was they fired Mueller, right? Yes. And, uh, and you guys gave me sort of a hot and cold from there. Yep. And uh, it eventually came around to something about... I, I think I'm eventually guessed something. That did somebody not do something that Trump wanted them to, and that's when you guys uh, filled me in. I was almost disappointed, but also very relieved because I was kind of afraid we had a you know something more kinetic going on. So, yes. No. It was not nuclear war with with North Korea. Uh, yeah. So the next time the band plays, I'm keeping the phone open and out on top of the. Email. It, was,
1: it was just a funny test of like you know sort of just how bad is it if Bobby can guess you know what the <laughs> what the reaction is. Anyway, we will get so so after the Russia sanctions bill, we'll talk a bit about you know I actually think there's one very concrete legal question um, raised by all, this whole story. It's mostly politics, but there's one legal question which is you know what about these bills. That are yes. pending in Congress that would actually provide a modicum of protection against a pretextual and impermissible firing of Mueller. We've talked about them before, but we're going to briefly rehash what the big fight is about them and why they're not moving.
0: Okay, good. And then uh, that will lead naturally to uh, everyone's favorite to- oh, topic, God.
1: hashtag release the memo or, or
0: hashtag they're going to release the memo. Or or, or hashtag, I'm going to go cry in the corner now. Well, we'll have a lot to talk about on this one. We'll talk about um, some of the surrounding issues, such as whether now they need to hashtag release the dissent. Um, And then we'll move on to uh, news that has come up a few times over the past year, right? (laughs) Uh, The possibility that eventually the White House will get around to repealing Obama's executive order on Gitmo closure.
1: Right, so I think Politico and NBC News and the New York Times and various other outlets all broke this, I think, right about the same time as the the Mueller firing news, maybe a little bit earlier. Yeah, and I
0: actually missed it. I didn't know until you told me we to talk about this. I was like, "What, what are you talking about? Executive um, order on Gitmo. Yeah.
1: So there. So there's a draft EO that apparently now multiple people have seen and that have been talked about in the you know in the in the press a bit. Um, I think by my account, Bobby, this is now the fourth. Draft EO that we've seen on Good. There's probably
0: been many, many rounds because at a certain point there were contending drafts, but this is at least the third or fourth round of okay, they're about to do this. Right. So we'll talk about what's at stake and what's not at stake. More to the point, and then lastly, I think we can't help but uh, close with uh, consideration of Strava and heat maps.
1: It, the extravagant. Oh, nice. Uh, we'll have to worth that in the title. The, the extravagant union. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, our, that's our episode title Trying to write that down, it looks like it's just a hodgepodge How, how about the state of the union is extravagant
0: Oh, that's good, that's there we good go. Alright, okay
1: um, Anyway, but but so the, the Strava scandal is actually Frankly, I, I actually think in any other news cycle, Bobby In like a different time in our history This would have been a huge story about OPSEC, operational security About, you know, sort of big data um, And sort of a, an interesting um, sort of Data point anecdote, right? About how big data actually can tell us a whole lot about things.
0: Yeah, I, you know, my reaction has been a little bit more lukewarm, but we'll, but I do think it's significant. We'll get to that. Um,
1: And then just because we have to, right? Super Bowl predictions. Okay. Uh, Raiders forty-one. Buccaneers thirty-one. Oh wait! Shoot, that didn't work. <laughs> that was your preseason Um <laughs> <was my> <laughs> uh, And also, we're gonna say we're, we might say a brief word or two about the Grammys. Yeah.
0: Somewhere along the way, we feel like it's flagging. We need to talk about the Grammys yeah. and the performances
1: and and, and and why I just am always a fan of award shows where the awardees can actually perform live. Where they actually, just, yeah, that's a like,
0: lot. <laughs> it's a lot more fun to watch. Yes, So sure. Grammys,
1: Tonys, yay! Yeah. Oscars, Golden Globes. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, speaking of things that are, uh, yeah, a
0: reaction a lot of people had to the administration's actions this week on the Russia sanctions front. Let, let's give some context here. Uh, last summer, uh, to the administration's initial chagrin, at least initial chagrin, Congress pretty overwhelmingly passed something called the can- – I, I hate these types of statute <laughs> titles. Here it goes. Countering America's adversaries through sanctions – Act of 2017. CATSA? So it sounds like ketchup or catsup, but it's the cannery in America's adversaries. Oh, are you
1: a catsup person?
0: No. No, okay. ketchup. Okay. Ketchup. Okay. Um, so the, well, I'm going to call it that now, though, the Ketchup Act. So the Ketchup Act yeah, I, was- I call,
1: I, call the, I call the the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board the peekaboo. The peekaboo. Exactly. You know, you know, it's pico Yeah, but
0: I always want to say peak-claw yeah. when I see that. Well, it's also that. Less acronym talk. So the Ketchup Act L-A-L-A-T, is L-A-T, a, LAT. less acronym talk. Oh, no, stop. (laughs) You can almost hear the people hanging up. If only there was dial tone in podcasting land. Okay. It's a set of provisions on sanctions on a variety of topics. There's Iran stuff. There's, there's a bunch of Russia stuff. And there's there's a cluster of things that are brought on by the, the idea that Russia interfered with our election. And there is a need to have some kind of response. This was Congress sort of bigfooting the White House with an overwhelming vote in the Senate and the House, requiring a variety of things to take place, including things relating to economic sanctions. Now, there are many moving parts here, Steve, but uh, there were a number of things that were uh, set with six-month triggers. Mm -hmm. And and this week was or is the week for that six-month deadline to come due. So I want to identify one thing that did happen, that the administration did do, and then one thing that some people thought might happen and didn't happen and whether that's significant. So what did they do? Well, first of all, Section 241 of the Ketchup Act. Uh, it, gave, it gave the Treasury Department six months to produce a report that I like to think of as the uh, Putin and Friends Corruption Index. And it's, 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 a really, it's kind of funny to read 241. It, you can almost, it, it's just interesting. It basically says that Treasury needs to consult with the State Department and the Director of National Intelligence to identify a list of sort of the, who are the key officials in the Putin regime, who are the key oligarchs that are close to the government? And this is not all defined all that clearly. A lot of room for interpretation. And the idea is create a list of these people, identify who they are, state their net worth, and describe the in, in indicators that there may be corruption afoot. Imagine that. Um, so it's, it basically it's a name and shame type device. It's not that these people that get named are all sanctioned. It's just that they're all embarrassed. So this is sort of a way of Congress sort of forcing the executive branch's hand, and kind of an interesting example, I think, of the interbranch uh, interaction and how Congress, when it's acting, sort of basically under its foreign commerce and its and its other powers, can can in, oblige the executive branch to take certain steps. So introducing a theme of unitary executiveness well, that we will oh pick gosh. up again later on. No way. The, yes.
1: What's um, that? That or, old chestnut. Well, you don't drink. Uh, <laughs>
0: I, you know, I was not aware how often uh, that old chestnut was coming up, but <laughs> our, our listeners have told us that that is indeed a thing.
1: It comes up so often that you might even say it is an old chestnut. Oh, that's so recursive. So, <laughs> uh, so they've published this report. And so there's a
0: list of, you know, 100 something Putin administration officials, and I think 92 uh, ol- oligarchs and others who've all been identified. And of course, these people are all hacked off. And there is the prospect and part of the game here is to signal hey you are people who might be sanctioned and also to put into the uh, you know public space here's here's what the US government says your net worth is and why we think you're corrupt etc right. so that is definitely uh, something that goes on the that makes Russia angry account and the administration <laughs> absolutely deserves credit for for following through on their obligation to produce that uh, so what didn't they do that has people uh, somewhat uh, unsettled or unhappy in some quarters I'm going to argue that they they shouldn't be unhappy. So here's here's the deal, Section 231 of the Catch Up Act uh, gave six months from the day the bill was passed. Uh, so basically th- till this week, and it says that the president quote shall mm-hmm. impose certain financial sanctions on persons whom he finds did knowingly engage in significant transactions with the Russian defense and intelligence sectors, the Russian government's defense, ministry of defense, Russian intelligence. Um, the basic idea, which is further explained by the Office of Foreign Assets Control, is that this provision requires, on its face, requires sanctions on anyone who does a significant transaction with uh, the Russian military or Russian intelligence, uh, at least where the transaction involves the purchase or sale of military usable or intelligence usable Uh, equipment and services and so there's a lot of ambiguity about what's in and what's out and you're, you're basically told on the OFAC website well consult the State Department and they'll help you figure out whether you can do that deal or not now Obviously, there are a large number of entities around the world that might want to enter into contracts with these Russian government entities and who might therefore think, geez, I'm I'm going to be sanctioned. This has potentially sweeping effect, including on a lot of allies or, or, or other states around the world where you have people who want to do those deals. And so if there were no exceptions in the statute, then the right way to look at this would be, wow, they gave six months warning and then suddenly everybody's getting sanctioned. Right. Well. There are carve-outs, and there are two kinds. There's a waiver mechanism built into the statute, and then there's also a, I'm not sure how different this really is, but a a sort of a -a six-month-at-a-time delay mechanism. And here's how they work. The waiver mechanism says the president can waive the initial application of sanctions uh, if, if the president submits to Congress two things. A written determination, the waiver would be either in U.S. national security interest, or the waiver would actually further the enforcement priorities of the statute. Now focus on that, because I think that's what just happened here, that waiver would actually further the enforcement priorities of the statute, which sort of raises the question, what are the enforcement priorities? Hmm. Well, i one way of looking at that is the enforcement priority is to get people to not do deals with the Russian military or Russian intelligence. Um, Another way to look at it is the larger project of uh, discouraging the Russians from interfering through cyber operations in our our domestic politics. Um, Secondly, in addition to the waiver justification, which I just described, there must also be a presidential certification to Congress that Russia is making, quote, Significant efforts to reduce the number and intensity of cyber intrusions conducted by the Russian government. Um, so that's how the waiver would work. And the delay mechanism, you can delay sanctioning particular entities or persons for 180 days at a time if you find, uh, if the president will certify that the person is, quote, substantially reducing the number of significant transactions, close quote that they're doing with the Russians. So there's obviously a lot of flexibility. Well, there's one less deal by that arms uh, purchaser. So delay. Um, We didn't get new sanctions this week, Steve, and that set off a lot of commentary. A lot of it framed as, ah, there's Trump favoring Putin again, that sort of thing. Um, It wasn't clear to me from reading the outside coverage, maybe I just didn't dig deep enough, I didn't (laughs) dig all that deep, Mm -hmm. um, whether there was any clarity as to whether there was an invocation of waiver or delay or what. But it looks to me like waiver because I think it's across the board. And um, it seems pretty clear to me from one of the quotes I saw from a State Department spokesperson that they basically invoked that idea that waiver furthers the enforcement priorities of the statute. Here's what the State Department spokesperson said. Given the long time frames generally associated with major defense deals, the results of this effort, that is, the, the creation of this regime, they're only beginning to become apparent. And from that perspective, if the law is working, sanctions on specific entities or individuals won't be needed to be imposed mm-hmm. because, in fact, uh, there's already a deterrent effect I, I paraphrase that yeah, yeah. at the end um so I actually think that it's perfectly possible that that is in fact the judgment of the of the sanctions experts within Treasury and the State Department that, and that this
1: actually isn't like a super political thing this is actually just the the, the 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 ofac people basically doing what the statute wanted them to do I think
0: it, it's very it, it's at least as plausible as the idea that you know somehow let's put it this way I think that if the the career people who administer sanctions were being frustrated by the refusal of the White House to push forward on this, I think we'd be hearing about that. Um, There's that deep state again. Yeah, exactly. I also think that the thing was written with those waivers in mind, and all these delays, and take six months, etc., precisely because it is, in fact, one thing to threaten you're going to do this, and make it seem like you're probably going to do this, and you've got all sorts of complications if you start sanctioning all these uh, entities in other countries that happen to be buying weapon systems from the Russians. So um, I'm not actually that surprised that you don't get it. Now, if you get some particular egregious deal that's really problematic from an entity in a country where we don't mind, right? you know, putting the thumb on them, that might be one thing. I'm not surprised that this didn't happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in a diff... Here's the only thing that worries me, and, and it's... and it's I think this is not inconsistent with everything you've just said, which, which I think was super helpful. Um... What worries me is in a normal universe, the way I would have faith that the regime was being implemented the way Congress intended would be if the relevant stakeholders on the Hill you know, sort of came out publicly – Right. And said, yes, this is what we wanted. No, this is not what we wanted. Well, There is some of that. So Senator Cardin issued right. a very conciliatory yes. statement saying that,
0: you know, they were not doing what we wanted before. This is a step in you know, the right and, direction. And,
1: and I know Senator Cardin and actually, you know, I, I think there's no reason to doubt the sort of significant, the the, the, gen, the, the sincerity of that statement. Um but this is such a distract you know, there's so much noise right now, right? Oh, that, sure. And Senator Cardin is one senator, right, out of a, a body of five hundred and thirty five legislators, right? So so, you know, this is the exact kind of thing where normally I would actually put deep stock into what kind of reaction it generated on the Hill. And the Hill's kind of busy right now.
0: Well, this this may cause us to change the order of what we're talking about because I think that really leads nicely oh, into this. Okay, sorry, sorry, began. You have to wait. Yeah. Well, I I think it leads to this larger question for those who are yeah, look. I I you know that I share with you. I'm very concerned about what's going on in some respects as well. Um, there is this question of how much. Therefore, there's a. For On every topic of everything the executive branch does while Trump is president, how much of a shadow hangs over every action? Um, I certainly think this is, this is most likely an example of something that seems to be functioning in a relatively normal way. Right,
1: this being the, 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 the implementation sanction, of the sanctions yeah, yeah. bill.
0: Whereas, whereas this topic we're about to talk right. about, the release of the memo nonsense, is absolutely not normal. Um, and I think we may differ in the extent to which we think the shadow
1: therefore falls across the entire executive branch from top to bottom. That, that's fair. All I would say is, I, perhaps we don't differ, that release the memo and its attendant Mishagas, um, right, is consuming a whole lot of oxygen. No question. That at other times might have been consumed on, you know, uh, sort of – the congressional support for or skepticism of executive compliance with this important piece of legislation. Well,
0: I think we also agree to go further that it's not just that there's a lot of oxygen being consumed, which could be compatible with what a silly distraction. We're right. all focused on nonsense. That right. doesn't really matter. Oh, th- this release of the memo stuff matters. Right. It's not in, silly. In, in, in a
1: bad way. Right. It's, it's, it's the whole – right. I mean, this is – we talked about this last week, right? And so I'm, I'm I'm loath to sort of relitigate the conversation we had last week. Um but it's not silly. It is affirmatively alarming and disheartening and discouraging, um, right? It's it's silly that we've gotten to this point, but the point we're at is not is is many things. It's not silly. Right? So let's talk about
0: without recapping last week. <laughs> for those who didn't hear it, we agreed more or less across the board on the likelihood that the claims being made in the Nunes memo. Are probably not at all fair interpretations of the record, and probably you know more or less can be summed up as an attempt to add to the campaign to delegitimize the FBI in general, the DOJ in general, and the Mueller investigation in particular by casting aspersions and drawing the worst possible inferences from uh, cherry-picked and, facts. And,
1: and the Hillary campaign. I mean, and and sort of you know trying to sort of basically say there was an original sin right, to wit, the compilation of the steel dossier, and everything else follows from that original sentence and is by it. Right, and for a variety of reasons, we don't think that follows at all. Nope.
0: Um, so let's talk about what, what is further developed since last week. Yes. I, and so one thing I think is really important, and I suspect we'll agree on this, um, it, the, the House Permit Select Committee on Intelligence has now voted, party-line vote, uh, to release the memo. The memo is now going to be reviewed by President Trump, and needless to say, I'd
1: be, I'd be very shocked
0: if he doesn't approve its... Uh, I mean,
1: I, he had folks on TV. This, there, were, there were Trump folks. I like, think Kellyanne on was on TV this morning saying, "Of course, the president's first interest is transparency." Of course. To which I say, "Come on!" I mean, like, do you hear yourself talking? Well, I'm not going to, you know, dignify that one with any any further commentary. But it's, worth, but it's worth just so so let's let's try to keep some law here, right? So what the House Intelligence Committee did last night was actually, in any other context, a remarkable step. Which is they took advantage of this obscure p- part of the House rules. It's um, Rule 10 of the Rules of the House of Representatives, Section 11G1, which was written as into the House rules back when the House Intelligence Committee was created in 1977, which allows for the committee to release classified information, not to declassify it, because the committee does not have declassification authority. But to nevertheless lawfully allow for the public disclosure of a classified document. How can the House grant itself by
0: rule any lawful authority to do anything? That doesn't sound like it's an exercise of statutory authority. It sounds like it's an exercise of the House just telling itself it wants to be able to do something. Well,
1: so I mean, you know, the House does have the power in Article One, Section. Five, I think, to make its own rules, right? right? But that's not law of the land. That's just making its own rules. That's true. Um, so, that, I mean, listen, I think there's an interesting constitutional argument about whether uh, Section 11G1 is constitutional. Um, you and I might disagree. I actually think it is. Um, but that's because I have a broader view of Congress's power to set its own rules on questions of national security classification
0: if we think if we if we stipulate just a hypothetical person who had a sort of a more sort of traditional executive branch kind of primacy in in deciding what's classified or not it's fair to say then that there's a serious question it'd be one thing if there was a statute enacted that purported to grant to congress the ability to declass effectively declassify something outside the speech or debate context, yep. which is a separate issue, right? We'll get to it. If it's speech or debate, then they've got a constitutional basis. But if you had a statutory basis, well,
1: the speech yeah. or debate clause is not authorization to disclose. The speech or debate clause immu- immu- is immunity, immunity from right. facing legal right. consequences. Pract- it's
0: in practical terms authorization. It's not Man. by its own terms. Um, but if it was merely a statute saying, "Oh, by the way, a member of Congress can decide while well, right, like shopping," the of VISA, to, right? Yeah. Like,
1: like if there was if, if, if Section Eleven G One was written in the Right. Then you'd
0: have a clash between the president's asserted Article 2 authorities right. in the statute. This isn't even that. That's why I think it's weaker. This isn't a statute. This is the House making rules for itself.
1: So, listen, I mean, I, I don't want to get lost in what I think is a disagreement between us about Section 11G1. Right. Right? Um, right, and
0: the point being, like, here the executive branch isn't mad. In fact, it's happy. So right. you don't you don't get to see the issue, but I don't want to let it pass I, that there's a separation of powers and, challenge. And right? I don't
1: want to let it pass that this is the first, that, that this, and not any of the intelligence abuses that Snowden revealed, right, and not any of the other sort of scandals that have happened in the 40-year history of FISA, this is the first time this authority has ever been utilized. I,
0: I would say that, yeah, and that's probably in large part because normally the executive branch would be unhappy about the, co- the Congress, or I should say here, a very small slice of the Congress well, deciding they so want to what do So that's why I want. This. I want to
1: talk about that. But um, Well, not only that, Bobby, but normally you would have the sophisticated inter-branch dialogue where some kind of arrangement would be—accommodation would be reached, right. where instead of the House Intelligence Committee— I think the Senate Intelligence Committee has a similar rule, um, where instead of the committee forcing the issue, um, actually the executive branch would take the liberty of selectively redacting and then declassifying right. through Including all the documents. Including with interagency review, yep. but above
0: all, review by the entity that
1: originated the classified right. information, and so, so, so,
0: which and in this case would be the Justice Department and the FBI. Well, so
1: let's go back to—right, so, so a good comparison, right, would be the— The SSCI, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, executive summary of its, you know, massive report on the CIA's detention rendition interrogation program, colloquially known as the Torture Report, right, released publicly in December 2014 with a whole bunch of minority views and after having passed the document through – Um, checks by all of the relevant stakeholders, including CIA.
0: Right, and so when that document was published, which was very analogous, this is a staff product summarizing what they think happened based on reviewing classified information that was the primary source. It's not the primary source. It's a secondary source characterizing it all. You had a lot of controversy in that instance. And I think quite properly, you had both the majority report and the dissent or the, the minority report from, from the Republicans. And you had contemporaneous statements released by the CIA setting forth its view about what had been characterized. And it was all put out there for people to take the part. And to sentence, make their own judgments. And to be able, as as we both did, you know, read both sides, yeah. take it on board. Yep. That's not what's happening here, and that really bothers me. Yes. So, um, so what quite happened apart, apart from releasing the memo itself,
1: so what happened last night was the House Intelligence Committee voted, as you said, on party line, on a strict party line vote, to release the Nunes memo, um, but not to release either the shift memo, right, which might be analogized to the dissenting view, to the minority report from this. To be clear, uh, Adam Schiff,
0: so the minority has done basically an annotated response pointing out what they say are all the flaws in the majority report. So, you know, by the same principle that you're supposed to release the memo so that we have transparency about what FBI may have done here, why wouldn't that same also be true for the dissent or the minority report from the same committee? Or to
1: go back to what we talked about last week, the underlying FISA application itself, which, you know, I completely completely concede surely has sources and methods right that would need to be redacted right. but but why is there i mean i tweeted this this morning and i believe this very deeply if you are pushing for release of the nunes memo and couldn't care less about Either um, I tweeted could care less, but Karen pointed out it's couldn't care less, mm-hmm. and um, and you couldn't care less either <laughs> about the release of the shift memo or the underlying FISA application. Stop trying to tell me this is about transparency.
0: Yeah, I think you you kind of have to take
1: take it all, right? You got to bring it all out now, or th- or you have to concede that it's not actually transparency you're interested in. You're right. Exactly. You're, you want the Devin Nunes partisan cliff notes. Right. Exactly. So I think you got
0: to take it all, and and I do hope that it, it looks very clear that sooner or later the Nunes memo is coming out. Out. The Shift memo needs to come out as well. Now, as Julian Sanchez pointed out, um, there is for those who are trying to show that insofar, let's just let's stipulate for the sake of discussion that the Nunes memo at best cherry picks and at worst distorts what the actual documents underlying may show. If that's the case, then FBI and DOJ are in a bind, right, because obviously the natural way to rebut this is to put the underlying primary sources, and as you say, the FISA application itself with the FBI agents' affidavits and whatever is said in there, um, putting it all out in the public record. Well, that's— requiring you to go ahead and reveal exactly what your sources and methods were, et cetera. And and as Julian pointed out, that is a bit of a gray male situation where in order to defend itself, the government may be obliged, or in this case, the government's, it's all intra-governmental. The FBI in particular and DOJ may be obliged to reveal things, include things that may be coming from additional stakeholder entities like NSA, perhaps, Um, That really it's a not in the country's interest to have exposed at that level. I mean, let's just imagine hypothetically that one of the things in the original FISA affidavit is a description of a particular human source within, say, the the Russian or Ukrainian governments or something, um, revealing that some particular person was in a position that is, is not public knowledge now can't rebut effectively without revealing that. So that's where it's a bit of a gray male situation.
1: And and I would just add, I mean, I think one of the more interesting documents that I hope everyone who's paying attention to the situation reads is the January 24th letter that Stephen Boyd, um, Assistant Attorney General at the Justice Department um, in the Office of Legislative Affairs, sent to Chairman Nunes and all the other sort of relevant constituents um, about why DOJ thought it should at least have the chance to review the memo, right, and to, to conduct a sort of careful screening of the memo before it was released. Yeah. Right? So, so I just the, – the problem here is not – the conspiracy theorists, right, are pointing to people like me because I've, I've, the trolls have been having fun with me on Twitter the last couple of days <laughs> um, as proof that there must be something to hide, Right? Aha, the, the more the more angry
0: you are, the more it's a conspiracy, right? That's, response, well, that's classic conspiracy thinking, oh, right? Cool. Yeah, but yeah, but try
1: telling that to a conspiracy theorist. I don't do. Yeah, um,
0: I, I recommend not engaging.
1: Well, I, I don't. Don't feed the trolls. Um, but you know, I read my I read my mentions. Yeah, what yeah. I um, the problem is. I'm this. feeling left out. By the way, come on, trolls. Oh, we'll say something more controversial. Yeah. I will. Um, so the problem is the problem is this. Um, I have no trouble believing that. The government has, at various points in the forty years of history of FISA, obtained FISA warrants on either inaccurate or perhaps even affirmatively, you know, mischaracterized um, um, evidentiary foundations. Right? Um, that happens. I'm not saying I'm not trying to excuse it. Right? It is possible that the Steele dossier was part of the underlying FISA application here, but the number of things that would have to be true in sequence. For this to be the scandal that the conspiracy theorists are suggesting it is, is mind-boggling and includes at the end of it Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein. Um, whose name and signature are on the last couple of applications for reauthorizations of the same underlying FISA surveillance. Well, and this is why people are starting to say,
0: and, and this is the heart of the whole story, in my opinion. Yes. There's, there's been all these trial balloons saying, ah, it's Rosenstein. He's <sighs> the sort of. Now that Comey's gone, n- now that uh, you know the McCabe, McCabe is gone, it's Rosenstein who's the sort of the, the head of the deep state conspiracy.
1: Give me a break! Right, the Republican U.S. Attorney for Maryland, the long time, right?
0: Serious, of course, that's true for all these people, right? That they are serious career prosecutors, law enforcement officials. But that to the, to the conspiracy minded, this is just further deep state evidence. Rosenstein is the the, the Trump appointed. Uh, Re- clearly a Republican, like like Mueller himself, obviously, that, that just adds to the conspiracy, <laughs> right? But here's the deal. Um, Rosenstein's the only person right now in an actual position to remove Mueller. Yes. And so the right way to understand what's going on here is a bunch of political theater and narrative construction designed to delegitimize Rosenstein and try to be able to remove him. I right. think that's the end game. Uh,
1: there's no I listen, I think there's no question that's the end game and I think there are actually stories. I think the New York Times had a piece yesterday, right, suggesting that the the real the real target of memo gate, right, is, is Rosenstein. Stein. Absolutely. Um,
0: and and for a lot of people have been critical of him for a variety of things including yep. his role in coming yep. Removal. Yep. I can only. I can't recommend highly enough Ben Wittes' essay yep. on Lawfare that goes into this question through the lens of the idea of the big lie. It, it's it's a brilliant piece and it's exactly right and it's and that's what makes this such high stakes. It's not just funny right. and in stupid Congress. It's
1: really serious. Well, so this is a good segue then to Mueller and McGahn. Yeah. Right. Um, because if I keep talking about releasing the memo, I'm just yeah, gonna. I'm gonna, gonna my head is literally going to explode. Um, so the Mueller McGann story. So. Um, I, I will confess that when the news broke Friday that there was a point last year where President Trump either ordered or at least said out loud that he was directly, you know, interested in firing Mueller. Can't someone rid, rid me of this meddlesome priest. <laughs> yes. Um, right. Um, I, I, I said to myself, um, wow. I am surprised by that, not at all, right? It's like, you know... Then he said that, yeah. Right, I mean, it's an overplayed meme, but, you know, there's gambling going on in this establishment. Um, the interesting part of the story to me, and this is why I try to say on the Locker Podcast, is twofold. First, um, that McGann was the was the sort of veto gate. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And second, that it came out now, mm-hmm, right? And, yeah. and it's the second point that I'm most concerned about, right, because there are two ways to look at why it came out now that this happened last June, right? One is because the leak is designed to stop the president from—it's it, designed to generate the same kind of blowback and the same kind of oppositional statements from Congress mm-hmm. that, you know, were helped commission yeah. the stand-down so last summer. Right? it's a warning summer, shot. Right? Um, and the other is because it's now clear it's about to happen, Right, and we're and people are trying to cover their necks. People are trying to show that look, I was opposed to this. Right, it wasn't me. Don't don't come don't come yeah. looking for me. Right, um, one of those is a good story. One of those is not. It could both. It could be both. Right. It could be both. Yeah. Or and, it, it could and, be both. And,
0: and frankly, I think it, it is probably the case that it always seems like it might be about to happen, and for all yeah. the people involved, it always seems like a good idea. It's dangerous though to surface publicly as having made a fool of. Trump right because the, right. you know insofar as there's anything that actually causes him to finish he's always in the process of turning Ugh. on the people working right. for him but but when he really turns on him it, it's when they seem to be showing themselves to be in control of him that's what he really does by the way mind. did
1: you see the story yesterday the NBC scoop yesterday about what Trump said to McCabe uh yeah, about his wife. About his wife. Yeah, no, it's terrible. So all right, so so why is this relevant to our podcast? So I, I want to actually try to get to the law here. Yes. Right. Um, we agree, I think, a hundred percent on the current state of the law. The current state of the law is that under the relevant regulation, 28 CFR section 600.7, whether good cause exists to terminate the special counsel is entirely up to the. Under the reg, the attorney general, but because Sessions is recused, the deputy attorney general, to wit, Rod Rosenstein. Right, which is why he's the guy which that they the angling focus. to undermine. We also agree, as we've discussed, I think ad nauseum in the past, that if Rosenstein is fired, the president actually has multiple options for who, who he could replace Rosenstein with. That it would not obviously be the next in line under the DOJ statute, Associate Attorney General Rachel Brand, the vacancies reform act would allow him to pick lots of other... Presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed folks to fill that and position. And I think
0: I think we agree, and I certainly feel this way that he's probably going to be motivated to try to go around the natural order succession, not put Rachel in that position because I think Rachel is somebody you can absolutely count on to to be faithful to the rule of law and to faithful to good faith in in approaching this particular issue, much as Rosenstein is proving to be.
1: Right. So then the question is, if the president does use the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, um, not a good acronym, um, and put someone in, the uh, appoints as acting deputy attorney general, someone who is willing to do his bidding vis-a-vis Mueller, is there anything to stop him? And the answer is politics, but not law, right? right? I mean, um, section 600.10 of the regulation basically says that the regulation does not create enforceable rights. This is where Wait, elaborate that. So
0: the the substantive standard is you can remove... Whoever's the decision maker, in this case, the Deputy Attorney General, uh, you can remove for misconduct, no. Dereliction of duty, not here. Incapacity, nope. Conflict of interest, they floated that. It's a bunch of baloney. (laughs) Uh, For other good cause... I think you and I agree there's no good cause here none of the standard is not actually met but you're pointing out and this is the nuance I think I really want the listeners yeah, to yeah. understand yeah. you're pointing out that yeah the the standard's not met but if you can find a compliant person to just say otherwise right. There's no way for the fired Mueller to do anything about the fact that it wasn't a proper firing.
1: So I don't want to go all the way to no way. It would be an uphill battle, right? right. So so imagine Scott Pruitt is the acting deputy attorney general, Okay. right? Um, and Pruitt says, I have determined— that there is good cause to fire yeah, Mueller. There's, there's bias. There's. But, there's whatever. A... I he he just takes the clip. He takes the the talking points from the president. Right. Right. Um, conflict of interest. Bias. Blah it's, blah blah. And see the, See the Nunes memo. See right, the. Yeah. See the Nunes memo. Which
0: doesn't even probably
1: pertain directly just to Mueller. Never to, mind so, you're, Okay. Now you're so you you, disturbed. All right. Okay. So <laughs> so. Um, It is theoretically possible that Mueller could nevertheless try to sue, right, to challenge his, uh, at that point, unlawful termination. The problem, as I said, I think a bit too quickly, is there's language in the regulation. It's 28 CFR 600.10 that actually would be, I think, a very powerful lever against such a lawsuit because it says the regulation itself does not create enforceable rights, meaning Mueller could not claim that his rights were violated. Right. If he, even if good cause did not, in fact, exist. So he, he'd have an injury, in fact, et cetera. He'd have standing there because controversy. But he'd fail to state But he, claim. he
0: doesn't have a claim.
1: So now we come back to something we talked about in September, way back when, which is these two pending bipartisan bills to protect Mueller. And the key to understanding both bills, one of which is co-sponsored by Lindsey Graham and Cory Booker, and the other of which is co-sponsored by Tom Tillis and Chris Coons, is that they don't actually change the standard for removing Mueller. All they do is say, yes, the regulation that the Justice Department itself promulgated is the governing rule for when a special counsel can be removed. What the bills provide for is judicial review by a three-judge district court, so you don't just get one random judge, by three federal judges, of whether the deputy attorney general or acting deputy attorney general's determination that good cause existed was correct.
0: Is it, uh, would it be de novo review? Would it be deferential review?
1: So, I mean, formally, it would be de novo review. Um, you know, I think you have an interesting argument about whether the agency would be entitled, whether DOJ, in this case, would be entitled to any kind of deference, deference Yeah. Um, under, it wouldn't be Chevron, because it's not a statute, but it's re, it's, its own regulation. And mm-hmm. there's a big fight among administrative law right. scholars about when, whether agencies are entitled to, I think, is it our deference, right, whether you're entitled to deference with regard to the interpretation of your own regulations?
0: And, and so if the answer, if the answer to that very interesting legal question turns out to be uh, no deference, it's a de novo review, then in effect, this makes the three-judge panel the decision maker on the good faith removal and provision. Even, but, if, but, even,
1: but even if there's some deference, either formal or even informal, right, the point of having judges review would be that in that context, the acting deputy attorney general would need at least something, right? right. He couldn't just make it up. He'd actually have to have some plausible whether we agree with it or not. Right.
0: There would have to be a prima facie showing. And then it could be tested on the facts and the law and the interpretation. So you guys, you testified in front of Congress about this. You and Eric Posner both thought these were defensible. Mm-hmm. Kilimar argued this is actually unconstitutional. Yes. Um, so there's sort of a Morrison v. Olson. There's an appointments issue. There's a removal issue. Yes. Um, Amar put a lot of weight on Edmund versus United States, which is so right up your alley because it's a it's a Military mil- Judges. Military judges. <laughs> I I had to refresh my recollection of Edmund. I was like, what was the what kind of oh good lord, it's another military judge case. Wait, that was Del These things are coming up all the time. Come on, man. Okay, so so the question is Amar makes the argument that um whatever Morrison V. Olson said about how you could still be an inferior officer, even with uh, you're not fireable at will. Right. Uh, he he claims that's effectively been overruled, uh, and I'm assuming
1: you don't buy that. So not only do I not buy that, but I mean, Morrison versus Olson is still cited by the Supreme Court as good law, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So so here's the thing: to to believe. So so let me sort of back up one half step. Um. These bills have frozen, right? Like since that hearing in September, nothing has happened. Right. And when you actually get folks to, when you get Republicans to explain why nothing has happened, right, you get two responses. One, oh, we don't need them, right, to which I say read the news, right, um, and actually, like, Kevin McCarthy was on, I think, the media, the, the Sunday shows, um, I think he's, what, the House whip, right, um, or the House Majority Leader, um, right, McCarthy's on the, on the Sunday shows, saying the whole story proves that we don't need these bills because he didn't fire Mueller, yeah, to which what? I say, with this president, so, but the, the better argument, when you peel away the layers, is the bills aren't moving because there are constitutional concerns about them. And here's the thing. For there to be a constitutional problem with these bills, two of two things need to be true, right? Morrison versus Olson has to no longer be good law, Mm -hmm. even though the Supreme Court still cites it and hasn't overruled it. And you would have to accept that these bills raise the same problem that the independent counsel statute raised in Morrison. Right? And the problem with that is that I'm not even sure you get to the second step because these bills are so much weaker and less of an affront to executive power. To believe that these bills are unconstitutional, you have to believe that there cannot be any single person in the executive branch who gets to serve with any kind of removal protection. Do you think that the real i I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. any officer. Any um, officer. Employees yeah, yeah. Right, right. are different. different Civil yeah. service. Yeah, but yeah. but you you have to believe that there is no officer in the executive branch who can have removal protection, right? And so there goes not just Morrison, but, like, bigger than Morrison. Like, if we're
0: sort of following sort of the Dellinger memo model of, right. like, you're supposed to predict what the Supreme Court would do uh, and and really try to predict it based on existing law. I mean, first of all, it, it's hard to know what the current lineup of the court actually would do on this issue, um, I think it's fair to say that Gorsuch might have a different view on this. Uh, yeah. It's interesting to ponder what Kagan's view might be.
1: She's but, written about it. Yeah. So, so in her one Law Review article, um, then she's, Professor she's Kagan. She
0: applauds Scalia's dissent, right? She
1: applauds Scalia's dissent um, uh, rhetorically, right, and yeah. as a prudential matter. But she actually rejects the theory, right, as, as a legal matter. And well, this, I, and I this think it's what,
0: up in the air, though. I think it, it, you can't just say, "Like, look, this is entirely foreclosed by a stable, determined." There's no way there's an issue here. But I also don't think this is why
1: the bills aren't moving. Well, so f- there, right, it's an excuse, not not not. Right, that's right. just something to it, say. It's, right, it's it's support, not illumination. But here,
0: here's the thing, though, that gives me pause on this issue. There's like no
1: chance that this becomes law, even if Congress passes it, right? So I don't. know. I mean, this is so. So Jack made this point on the on the emergency lawfare podcast, yeah. right? Now. And here's the thing. So I'm not sure, right? I mean, imagine that, like, Lindsey Graham and Tom Tillis throw their weight behind this, right? And, you know, um, some members of Congress realize that they actually have an institutional responsibility that goes beyond loyalty to their party, right, and tribalism. Um, Would the president really risk, first of all, this being the bill he vetoes, and second, um, potentially forcing an override vote that could be very close Right.
0: Uh, yeah. Because I mean, is there any higher stakes for him than this issue? I'm not sure he cares about anything, but if he, as much as this if issue, if he's
1: really convinced, right, that firing Mueller would be catastrophic, it would actually be pretty low cost to sign these bills, right? Because he wouldn't. Because he could say, "Listen, I have you know, I I have nothing to hide, right? If I'm coming for Mueller, I'm going to have a reason that will stand up in court." I think that there's there's almost nothing that will matter more to him than feeling that he
0: nothing galls him more than right. the lack of control he's discovering yeah. and so the idea that he would sign willingly onto any bill that would raise the barriers to but that to would that? be tell- I mean a veto would be telling onto itself right? I would be, be telling I just think it's I think it's far more likely than not that he would go ahead and pay yeah. the
1: cost of that may be this. right. Uh, it depends on where we are when we get there but yeah. but here's the thing so on the Morrison point I, mean, I just want to push back a little bit on the Morrison thing I certainly agree that if the issue came up in pure form a statute that looked just like the independent council statute yeah um I feel confident that there would be five or six votes on the current court to uphold it, but not to the point where I would like bet my life, set my my salary on it, <laughs> right? right? Um, as opposed to other things. So, yeah. so I agree with you. It is not a sort of etched-in-stone precedent. What what I think is missing from the sort of you know clickbait version of the constitutional analysis is just how different the current regime is from the Independent yeah. Counsel statute. What just what drove Justice Scalia mad in Morrison versus Olson were features of the Independent Counsel statute, or bugs, really, yeah. that we saw come to light during the Ken Starr episode, where the where the Independent Counsel had the power to expand his own right. jurisdiction, right. right, where he could not be removed by the Attorney General to go back to, you know, right, where, where the where the where there was too much power for the, the Independent Counsel, basically could run his own. Show. Right. No, it was,
0: it was a separate, is a mini Justice Department that really was independent. Special counsel is
1: not the same. And and it's a regulated—I mean, so, right, the standard is written by the Justice Department.
0: Right, but here, I guess the the essential question is the special counsel, because, as you described earlier, can't really contest their own firing, there's a certain extent to which they're not really protected as much by the good cause. That's the whole point of this is they're not as protected by the good cause protection as you might think. And if if something happens by statute to effectively, uh, you know, make that something with much more teeth, then it puts the question much more harshly. And then the the issue that arises is just how far in people's minds has the idea of restoring a bit of unitarianism to the executive on these issues. Um, I I think it's, I'm not saying that I think it's more likely than not that Morrison would be overturned in part. But I think it's very possible.
1: So so listen, all, all I'm saying is you can be a firm believer in a unitary executive. And still think that Morrison or not, right, put the independent council statute aside, it is possible to have at least some executive branch officers with four clause removal protection, right? To, to accept that this regime would be unconstitutional is to go all the way to the unitary executive, where it is literally unconstitutional to have anyone well, in the interesting. executive I, can't branch. Can
0: you imagine a, a, a line being drawn around the prosecutorial function as a particularly uniquely executive aspect of taking care that the law be faithfully But, executed? I mean, that's
1: what the executive... I mean, I don't know why criminal prosecution would be different in that context from any other executive branch enforcement function. They're all the same.
0: Well, I, I don't know. You can make an argument that the consequences are so much weightier with criminal enforcement that, that that's a different But as
1: in Morrison, you could... As Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote in Morrison, you can also make the argument that Criminal is the one place where you actually have the most compelling need Right, for some modicum of independence within the Which is what range. the
0: current, you know, if you look from a policy perspective, right. looking at if you're making ground rules up in the shadow of current right. events, you think, huh, maybe we need something more like Texas, where you've got an elected governor and you've, right. and then you have a separately elected attorney general. Well, so this,
1: so this is an interesting question. So I, I, I want to get to the question of, you know, what much what's one of our listeners, right, wrote to us and said, what kind of structural reforms, you know, can yeah. we pursue in the future? Um, maybe we should say that for another week because this has been what we've been droning on a bit, but I do want to ask you one more question, which is, um, so I had thought for a long time that the whole Nunes affair was one crazy congressman off on a frolic. Um, with every day that passes, with people like Tom Tillis, who, have, who sponsored this legislation, right, now saying, oh, we don't need it anymore, right? I am – I, a, a confessed Democrat, right, um, am losing faith that there are that many – principled Republicans in Congress who actually, if and when we get to a point where they need to assert Congress's institutional authority against this president, are going to do so. Can you walk me off that cliff?
0: Yeah, how about, think about Richard Burr and the role he's playing. Aaron Burr? Not that one, the (laughs) other, the one who's here now. Richard Burr, chair of the Senate Select Committee Mm -hmm. on Intelligence, who's been, I think- Who hasn't seen the memo. Who has not been allowed to see the memo, who's, I think, been- Persistently and conspicuously responsible and measured in how he's approached all these issues, Um, I think that you could look to the way that the Senate and General's behaving in contrast to the House, and of course, you know, even a even a you know superficial analysis of their different electoral
1: uh, frameworks show you why it's it's all it's all by design, right? Um, although, so, although although, I would not give the Senate a free pass on the Mueller protection bills, right? Because that's where we actually saw what looked like meaningful bipartisan movement last fall that has now completely dissipated. Uh, yeah, but
0: I think if you make if you make support for the Mueller protection bills, like the, the, the touchstone of whether there's even any yeah. reason to treat them as having good faith, that's not fair, I think. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, so also, there's this more interesting question, and we talked a little earlier right before we started about uh, what Paul Ryan has said or done today. And, and, and so this gets to the question of, is this just sort of – Chairman of this one committee, and then people that are you know under the chairman's gavel on right. that committee, it's a small number. Um, or is it more is it the, the house GOP as a whole? Well, Paul Ryan's obviously a, the central figure there, and you get kind of a mixed message today. On one hand, there is the unfortunate fact that he, he's quoted as saying something that kind of throws a log on the fire by saying there may have been malfeasance, it, was malfeasance his word. right? So he he kind of he kind of whistles uh, some support there. Not really a dog whistle, right? Because I could hear it. Um, it was as a human whistle, a regular old you know whistle, whistling the tune of FBI illegitimacy, but. If you look at the larger story, the story is they had a behind closed doors meeting where he was apparently berating the members not to make too much of this memo, not to try to exploit it, and specifically not trying to turn it into something to undermine the Mueller investigation. And of course, it to me that reads as here's this guy riding on he you know he's got a team of horses pulling in eight different directions and very dangerous forces. He in like a lot of the other leadership figures who very often. I agree. Haven't stood up as much as you yeah. or I might like, yeah. but are obviously playing a long game where they're trying to they're trying to corral these forces and not let them ride out of control.
1: I, I mean, listen, that, that's well said. And
0: and did I did I calm you at all? Give you did I restore any of your faith?
1: No, um, <laughs> no, because here's here's what I'm worried about. So I and we should stop talking about this because we've gone on for way too long. Right. Um, but but I am worried not so much about the moment because I have faith it will pass. Um, and if, if if it doesn't pass before November, I have faith that the, I mean, the number of senior Republican members of the House who are retiring, you know, Freylinghausen uh, is the most recent one, the chair of the House Appropriations Committee. I mean, this is going to be a wave. Well, um,
0: but yeah, but how is that going to eat? You're assuming that they'll be replaced by Dems, and they I might am. be replaced
1: by more sort of Tea Party-ish I, I, Republicans. I, you know, I, the thing that allows me to sleep at night. So don't, don't mess with me. This is what All I. All right, do, right. But, sorry, sorry so no, What no, allows no. me to sleep at night right now <laughs> is the is the fervent belief that the Democrats are going to retake the House in November. Um, at which point the difference in sort of institutional roles of the House and the Senate will, will will be very important again.
0: As someone once wrote, separation of parties, not powers. And so you got to get your checking from somewhere. I guess that's what it's going to be.
1: Well, no, but also, I mean, listen, the Senate, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if the moderate Republicans in the Senate, right, are, are you know, moderate in both directions, right? Yeah, um, I see. So what, here's my concern. My concern is there is a danger to turning intelligence oversight into just another partisan oh, yeah. wrench. Oh, Completely right? agreed with that. that. And it's a danger in both directions. It is a danger because it will lead to the wrong kind of checks on our intelligence community, our national security establishment, and it will encourage the wrong kind of abuses, right, because we will lose faith in the impartiality and integrity of the overseers and and we will lose faith in the responsibility and you know honesty of they who are being overseen.
0: I completely agree that the politi- the ongoing what we're witnessing is is enhanced politicization of the oversight process. It's there. There have been people talking about the decline in the bipartisan aspects and the professionalization, such as it was from its early heydays. It was never perfect. It was never perfect, but it was it was comparatively. Nonpartisan, Never. as compared to other types of committees, for a variety of reasons, it's been trending away from that for a while. But this is really something.
1: And, and my concern is, I don't know how we get it back, right? So, so, yeah. so the long-term questions I want to ask: one is the one that our reader sent us, which is, for, you know, how do you fix yeah. DOJ? Right, yeah. going forward. But I, I have a sort of broader question, which is, how do those who care about such things create a vision pursuant to which we could restore? Faith that even those who we didn't vote for are capable of conducting responsible oversight of government officials who no one voted for.
0: Yeah, it's really hard to figure out how you hardwire that. I do think that the the practical answer is you have to have chair and ranking member, chair and ranking member have to be responsible people who are willing on at least this set of issues to put country over party. Um, And that's a question of how do you motivate the leadership in the House in particular? Because I think the Senate is proving this isn't. A, as much of a problem, but right. there's degrees of it, um, going back, including especially to the to the, the prior rounds yep. with the Senate Select Committee Intelligence report we talked about, yep. but motivating the House leadership to think of Hipsy as a different vehicle where you don't just put in some person who really wants it, but
1: maybe has a bit of a um, a hackish approach to it. All All right. Okay. Anyway, that I was think we we'll covered that. Um, so we want to do two quick hits, right, I think, before we, yep. we, we wind down this 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 affair, and then a little bit of a, a really quick frivolity. All right, so quick on the Gitmo
0: closure executive order. <laughs> uh, just to remind listeners, uh, all... Th- all of us thought that one of the things Trump would do early on would be to repeal certain executive orders from Obama that were, you know, red flags. One of them being Executive Order thirteen four nine two, which is the one that says close
1: Gitmo within the year, right. et cetera. One being thirteen four nine one, which was right secret, det- uh, right, secret exactly. Uh, detention. exactly. We, we did methods. our we did
0: our sort of year end episode recapping some of this um, at various points throughout the year. There there have been. Ru- Wars and rumors of war. There have been uh, executive orders and or draft executive orders but touted in the paper. Right. Yeah, and and uh, the general thrust of the story, I think, it's fair to say, is early on there was there were some fairly dramatic and controversial proposals that trial ballooned out there, drew a lot of fire. Got w- popped. Got popped. Uh, and then less dramatic proposals this go round. We're, we're told <laughs> we're,
1: we're down to the least dramatic proposal ever. Yeah,
0: it could be. No, th- here, here's the thing. A lot of journalists report on this, some of them saying they've seen it. Okay, if you have, if you've got it, put it out there Seriously? so we can comment on it. Come on. Or at least give us the full details. But what it looks like this one does is it's just a clean repeal of 13492. Now, maybe it will be, maybe it won't be. If it is, what does that really mean? What's in 13492? Well, the, the thing that really matters in 13492 that would be then taken off the books is the directive that – executive branch policies to close gitmo i would argue way, that within a year within a year right so i would argue that functionally that you know that obviously that ship went, sailed that ship sailed a long time ago Past guantanamo and so it's pure formalism yes. the much more interesting question has been would such an executive order then say anything affirmative such as right uh, you know the the thing that i think is most important yeah. would it actually do anything to derail the prb periodic yeah. review board
1: process executive order 13567
0: I suspect that a lot of what's been coming up the works over the past year is maybe tussling over that, yep. and I really hope they don't get rid of that. That would be a, that'd be a shooting themselves in the foot type of move. Um, there's also been fighting over whether a new executive order would actually try to add to existing statutory language about who could be detained, yep. doing so in a way that might provoke controversy. But
1: listen, my my quick and dirty read on the double hearsay, right, that is most of these news reports, is that the executive order that we might finally get is just going to repeal 13492 and maybe have some, you know, um, hortatory, yeah. you know, language. It is important to fight terrorists, etc. And nothing else. And frankly, if that's what, it, if that's the culmination of a year-long interagency process about what the administration, what are we going to do about Guantanamo? We're going to repeal the po- We're, we're going to repeal yeah. the since defunct. Executive order, the promise to close it within a year, and nothing else. I would
0: consider that actually an excellent interagency process if it produces oh, that I, result. That I, I, would be that would be a showing of the ability of the the people with longer term national yes. interest in mind to to fend off what potentially were some wacky ideas,
1: and maybe a vindication of you know the prior administration's approach in this space. Well,
0: if you say that too much, it ain't going to happen.
1: Well, sh- none of them are listening to this podcast, <laughs> and it certainly did well, they should the you know the the screed about. Releasing the memo, we'll see. We'll All right. See. Um, speaking of interagency processes gone awry, yeah, that segue doesn't quite work. Um, yeah. Think about just things going awry. Things going awry. So, so I actually love, I, I love this story, even though it's bad. Um. So over the weekend, this fantastic story broke. Although apparently the data has been on the internet since November. Since November. Um. That Strava, which I vaguely knew about, but you know, this uh, a company that does geotagged. Fitness tracking, right? So you can you can show off or compete with your friends. I ran farther, I ran longer, right. et cetera. Um, you know, no one ever wants to see me run, so I, I keep well, that Here is my question for Steve: What would the heat map of your movements show? The heat maps of my movements would show that would it reveal
0: I, the secret location from which we're broadcasting right
1: now? Um, well, given that the secret location is my office, um, <laughs> the, is that like the only thing on your map? Just like this glow so of your the glow chair? from the law school, right? <laughs> yeah. Gl- law school glow, um, home glow. And maybe Flywheel Studio Glow That's and Supermarket and Daycare Glow. Daycare Glow, <laughs> exactly. Um, so so anyway, what, what, what this researcher figured out was the heat maps. Um, you know, in New York, they're not that exciting because there's just way too much heat, right? Um, and in Austin, we wouldn't be able to see all that much. But in, like, remote parts of Afghanistan or Somalia yeah. or parts of the world without a whole lot of, you know, People wearing Fitbits. Um, <laughs> you can actually learn quite a lot, not just about the patterns of individuals, but because there are people there going on jogs routinely wearing Fitbits, where previously secret military installations are.
0: Yeah, you know, so to some extent, like the runway-focused ones, there's a good chance that people who are really motivated to try to identify those locations may well have already figured that out. But I think that the angle of... Um, exposing some locations that maybe aren't as physically discernible through uh, yep. satellite photography. Yep. That's a big deal. And I, I gather there's some way, at least there's some vulnerabilities in the interface that enable you to actually get some individualized determinations, be able to do things like say, okay, so here's this guy. He patrolled clear, this clearly goes Well, it clearly goes to Fort Meade right. and, then go, and then goes to this place where the phone always turns off from 9 a.m. to, to that 12 must be p.m. A skiff. That's a skiff, I right. guess, in there and, yep. and so forth. So that's this is a sort of you know yet another reminder that in the age of increasing connectivity, it is it's an IoT type of thing. It's your Fitbit, it's your phone that tracks you. It's everything tracking you, and it, and it symbolizes the continuing decline of secrecy.
1: Yes, um, the and just the the only substantive and completely partisan not partisan, but like agenda point I want to make here, um, and just how much you can learn from big data, right? And 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 just why. Cases like Carpenter about whether we have an expectation of privacy in cell site location information are actually harder. Um, as a matter of first principles, than th- they th- ought th- to have you think?
0: Let me pressure on that. Do you think that this discovery that if you had this information, yeah. I think the surprise is, oh, did you realize your Fitbit was broadcasting this? Not, not that like if you could collect everyone's yeah. movements, that that
1: would be. I, th- I would have thought that was already pretty obvious. But, but I think, listen, for for a justice on the fence in Carpenter, maybe there aren't any. Right, the fact that our soldiers. Right. Did not realize, even after apparently having been briefed about this, that they were actually providing, you know, very accurate location data to potential adversaries simply by going out for a run. Right, I think that actually might mean something. Well, it it should insofar as anyone is
0: naive enough to think that that people on an individualized basis really understand the privacy settings for all the apps on their phones. And and this underscores something that I think is really important about Carpenter. The cell site location information, that's the obvious stuff. It's all the apps on your phone, including stuff that really doesn't need to know where you are. Like Whole Foods. Well, yeah. I mean, how many times have you been prompted in trying to access an app? Like, you know, is it okay to right. share your location, location data? And it's something that doesn't
1: need it. No, no but the and worst- that's that's the ones that ask you. So okay, so let me be the conspiracy theorist for a second. Okay, forget location services. It's the apps that ele- it's the apps that enable your microphone, um, yeah. <laughs> right? Because you'll, you'll get like an email later in the day that's like, "Hey, you should buy this." I was like, "I was just talking about that." Really, you have had that experience? That happens sometimes. That's there some apps. super. That's
0: the creepy uh, sort of audio version of when you've you know done a search like, oh, I wonder what the best restaurant in Tokyo is. In the next month, every time you go to the Washington Post, all you see are things ads about from that it, restaurant. Travel to Japan, yeah. yeah. Um, all
1: right, one last note, just because a uh, uh, breaking over email before we go to frivolity. Okay. Um, I am told by someone who would know that the draft detention that the detention executive order is being released today.
0: Boom. Okay, so prediction time. Time for my favorite category: uninformed speculative predictions. Okay, prediction. Um,
1: oh. Repeal thirteen four nine two. Yep. Reaffirm that detention is that military detention is part of the long term national security policy of the United States. Absolutely. Um, reaffirm the definition of the twenty twelve FY twenty twelve NDAA for who can be detained, and perhaps say that that includes ISIS. I
0: agree with all those. I would go further and say that it'll be mentioned in the State of the Union tonight. Yes, but it'll be framed in much which more. Is why, which is which is why it'll be released today. Oh, absolutely! No, there's no question. It's in order to support the talking point yes. there, um, and it will be accompanied by sort of a uh, sort of a, a shot. At the partisan shot at Obama, though it's a shot that would apply to equally to the prior administration as well, about how no more reckless transfers returning to the battlefield. It'll have a bunch of anti-transfer rhetoric accompanied with it. And so that leads me to say that executive order will also have a bunch of anti-transfer rhetoric. And so the million-dollar question here is: I'm hoping it doesn't say anything about the PRBs. Yes. And so for, for those who are going to go find this document and releases later, what are you supposed to look for? Look for the definition of who can be detained and see if it says something other other than members or substantial supporters of al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces, Secondly, does it say anything about the PRB process? Yep. Now, what it might Third, do, wait, sorry. Oh, yeah. Third,
1: does it say anything about citizens, right? With the Doe versus Mattis oh, case yeah, kicking yeah. along.
0: yeah, A strong prediction, not a word. It's Hopefully. all going to be framed as to non-citizens. Right. There's no way they're going to want to, on the eve of the State of the Union Address, hey. with with a strong Tea Party component to their base, yeah. do something that extends detention Fair. citizens. Um, there. But, but
1: But it would be it yeah. would be telling who's there? Now
0: here's Here's a little in-the-weeds nuance for anyone who's still listening. <laughs> if there's a definition of associated forces or anything like that, look yes. to see if— if it's associated, framed as associated forces who engage in hostilities against the United States or its coalition partners, or if it stops with a
1: period after the, the United States. States. Um, yes. Look for all those things. I suspect we will have a lot to say about it whenever it comes out. Okay.
0: Oh, memos galore.
1: All right. We're, we're over time, so let's do our, our super quick. Grammys, fun. Um, okay. Highlight of the Grammys for me. Yes.
0: Uh, Austin's own... Uh, a a performance. We were talking earlier about uh, the performance by uh, the musicians and how that's more fun to watch. And I commented when you mentioned this to me earlier that I said, yeah, that's great, especially if you like vocal performance. But it's, you know, these days, pop music and it, it's all just vocals. And I, I prefer to see uh, instrument performances. So I was super psyched when Austin's Zone, Gary Clark Jr., was on there uh, doing the homage to, you know, to. Uh, uh, Chuck Berry, yep. and, and there were other great performers as well in that particular set, and I thought that was fabulous. I think you like the vocal performances more.
1: I like the vocal performances more, and I'm going to go out on the limb and say that the performance I actually liked the most um, was uh, Kesha with the Resistance revival chorus singing "You Don't Own Me." Now I, I know <laughs> I know you are not into the melodramatic ballad. So actually, I, I am. I'm
0: super not into melodramatic ballads, and part of what wears me out about pop culture, pop music these days, is so many of the songs are these, in in her case, I'll make an exception because it's based in a very real personal experience, so I'll I'll totally grant that. But there's a whole category of of these sort of pop melodramatic ballads that are, you know, I guess if if you're really into voice, it's like, all right, I guess another version. They
1: all seem very derivative. Spoken like someone who plays a musical instrument. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Um, And then last but not least, Super Bowl predictions. Go. Uh, I, I said earlier the Cowboys,
0: but I, I'm willing to retract that. I think the Patriots are going to win, and and I think they're going to win
1: by, by eleven, by eleven. So thirty-one twenty.
0: Yeah, I'm just saying that the line's set at eleven.
1: <laughs> um, so I have I've said this before: the Patriots and the Eagle, or the Eagles and the Patriots, are in that order. The third and fourth teams in the NFL I hate the most. Um, so you're, right, you're hoping for like a three-two terrible game. There was like a college game fifteen years ago. It was like six to four. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm hoping for a good game. Um, I do not have faith that the Eagles will be there in the fourth quarter. I think I think it's close for a while, and I think the the Patriots pull away yeah. and win. I'm going to say thirty-seven to twenty-one. Okay, that's good. We've got a lot to go on there. Last topic, real quick.
0: NBA is going to start supporting gambling. Is this the worst idea you've ever heard, or is this just the new, the new reality where there's football teams in Vegas and Brent Musburger's in Vegas? Now the NBA supports gambling on the NBA. It all seems like just further signs of, you know. The apocalypse. The apocalypse coming upon us, yes.
1: <laughs> well, listen, given everything else we've talked about for the last hour and 10 minutes, gambling in the NBA is something that I think, at the, you know, I, I, I'm i not going to lose sleep over it. And yeah, you won't be shocked, shocked to find it. <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. Follow me at Steve underscore Vlodic. Follow the podcast at NSL Podcast. We are at Com. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell anyone who thinks release the memo is a thing. Stay safe out there.
0: (laughs) Adios.